Thanks for listening to The Wild Women Who Write, Kathy Nichols, Kim Connery, Elizabeth Jones, Kat Filer, and Gabby Anderson. We are so fortunate to have with us Bren McLean, author of One Good Mama Bone. Bren McLean was born and raised in Anderson, South Carolina, on a beef, cattle, and grain farm. She has a degree in English from Furman University, is an experienced media relations, radio, and television news professional, and currently works as a communications confidence coach. She is a two-time winner of the South Carolina Fiction Project and the recipient of the 2005 Fiction Fellowship by the South Carolina Arts Commission. McLean won the 2016 William Faulkner William Wisdom Novel in Progress for Took and was a finalist in the 2012 Pirates Alley Faulkner Award for Novel in Progress for One Good Mama Bone. This is McLean's first novel. Visit her website at www.brenmclean.com. Bren, first, after hearing you speak on more than one occasion, I just love your theory of storytelling and that you believe that you must be chosen to tell a certain story. And I love this so much because I feel this at work in my own writing life. And with my latest book in particular, Nicholas Eternal, it's very loosely based on some time I spent as a children's advocate. And there was a place in my heart that just couldn't settle until Nicholas's soul and my own were basically laid bare on those pages. And I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that I felt chosen to tell Nicholas's story. And if you don't mind, I'd love for you to share your thoughts on being chosen to tell a story and what called you to tell One Good Mama Bone. Oh, thank you, Kim. I love that you said, you know, laid it on your heart. That's what it takes for me. One Good Mama Bone is the third novel I wrote, but the first to be published. I wrote two other novels before that. People have already always saying, hey, Bren, are you gonna publish those now? No, 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 I'm not. The first one, I was not chosen. I just made it up, you know? I was just writing something. And which is fine because you have to learn. You have to learn the craft and the skills that you need, blah, blah, blah. But I'm telling you right now, how I come at writing is totally chosen based. I must be, and I'll tell you, it takes me five years to write a book. There is no way in this world I could just make up something just to make up something and have the fortitude to keep my butt in that chair for five years. Are you kidding me? Something higher than me, bigger than me, must be at work for me to sit in that chair and put in the necessary hours and hours and weeks and weeks and months and months that it takes. So let, let me tell you about how I was chosen for One Good Mama Bone. Actually, I was chosen twice because One Good Mama Bone is what became of a failed second novel. It was a novel called Willie June. Again, we'll never see the light of day. <laughs> but nonetheless, nonetheless, I was living in Atlanta, Georgia at the time and a neighbor of mine called me over one day and said, can you come talk to me? And you mentioned I'm from South Carolina, so I've got good Southern manners. So I went over and he proceeded to tell me about this one night in June of 1944 
when he was a six-year-old boy, summoned from his bed at night, made to come to the kitchen and witness the birth of a baby. What he told me that night was horrible. It was monstrous. I wrote a novel, though, that spilled from that night. Why? Because I felt chosen. I mean, he told me sitting there, Bran, I promised my mom in 1944 I'd never tell a soul. And I've been true to that, but I can't be true to it anymore. And I'm choosing you to tell, knowing you're a writer. I mean, if that's not chosen, I don't know what is. And so I walked off that porch after hearing this horrible experience that he had encountered as a six-year-old boy. And I, I wrote that story. And I wrote it verbatim as he had told me from this particular night that he had shared this monstrous act that his mother did and made him be a party to. But I got to tell you, I had two trusted readers back then. And both of them said, Bren, no, 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 darling. Nobody's going to read this book. Are you kidding me? No, no. Um, that woman is a monster. That mother is a monster. I had stayed true, though what he had told me and I got to tell you I didn't know what to do to fix it I was in no place to fix it because my own mother had died and I was in not so good of emotional uh, shape and I was writing a story I thought that celebrated mothers so I put it up and I was not in a place to do it but here we go here we go here we go the universe chose me again to tell that motherhood story that was so on my heart and that this neighbor of mine in Atlanta had started in me. And this would be in 2007, Kim, when I was visiting my father in Anderson, South Carolina on the farm that I grew up on, this, this grain and beef farm that you had referenced. And I arrived in the midst of what's known as a weaning. When you, when you separate the mamas from the babies. It's typically at age six months for beef cattle because farmers are hoping that the mothers are pregnant. And so they separate the babies. I arrived in the midst of this and those sounds, if anybody has never heard them, they're primal, they're guttural, they will get in your skin. Oh, it's like this. I arrived on the scene when this was going on. I went into the house. I fixed my father's supper. We watched TV. I went to bed. About five in the morning, the next morning, those guttural, primal sounds from the mothers calling for their babies that were about 30 yards away, the babies calling back and forth, back and forth. Oh, my gosh woke me up, I get dressed, I go out to the pasture, follow those sounds, and I see gathered at the corner fence, those mama cows. Y'all, they're calling for their babies and they're calling with such rigor that they're pushing on the fence posts. Those sounds got in my bones. They took up residence inside of me. There was an electric current rotating inside of me. And I knew in front of me was the story about mothers that I really, really wanted to tell. Here it was, 
So I walked over to the mother cow in the deep corner and I said, sweetheart, I can't bring your baby back. Cause I knew that's what she was wanting. Her eyes were, were cut at me pleading, Ouch. but I can tell your story. And so I threw out Willie Jen y'all. I threw out five years of work and I kept the mother I had created Sarah Kramer. I kept the little boy Emerson Bridge that I had created and knew that I needed now to reconfigure it and to recast what really had happened. So I was chosen twice for one good mama bone. And so for me, writing is personal. If it's not personal, no way, Jose, no way, Jose, can I do it. I love that. And as you were talking, it reminded me of my absolute favorite book on writing, Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art. And he talks about how when you sit down to write with intent in your heart and how the muse gathers around you and this idea of the muse, it, it wasn't this fluffy idea of these you know little angels around you, but the idea of sitting down with intent and soul you know, creates this type of, of magic that just, just comes from your heart, you know, and soul. And, and it just reminded me of what you were saying, you know, and I, I felt like that book on writing had so much soul and um, it just, everything you were saying reminded me of that. And I just, I just think that's lovely. And I feel that way too. I don't want to write if my soul isn't in it. Kathy, you had something to say? Yeah. I was just thinking mine's a, a little different. Well, the first book was not, but sometimes sister, I had heard the story of this young, younger sister who had married badly and moved with her husband because of some kind of drug situation. They had moved to an island country that was not so good on extradition. And everyone knew that he was abusing her, but her mother's in the States and all her relatives are in the States. They can't do anything about it. And in this story, and I did not put this in mind, but she had horses on the island and she did not want to leave because of the horses. She had finally decided she would leave. And unfortunately she was killed. And I was going through a lot of grief myself at the time that I wrote the book. And so it was kind of a way to deal with unresolved issues that people have when they lose someone. And I had not thought about it as being chosen to tell the story. I had more thought about it as sort of being driven to tell it. I guess that's the same thing because it definitely sounded like you were driven by those haunting sounds. And I think that I was more driven about trying to find a way to resolve some issues myself through this horrible unresolved situation that I knew about. So I, I hadn't thought about it quite that way about being chosen for the story. And then I actually wrote a sequel to it that I felt like my characters insisted on. I had never planned to write a sequel to The Sometimes Sister, but my characters just wouldn't leave me alone. And so I actually have a, the sequel came out in June. It's called The Substitute Sister. And in that one, it wasn't so much grief as it was about not belonging, wanting to belong to a family. And then in subsequent works, I've realized that so much of mine is about how a family isn't necessarily DNA. 
a family is something else. And so it's kind of like it all led to this, I don't know, revealing of that type of thinking, that type of story. And yet mine are pretty much suspense and I call them Southern suspense with heart and humor. So mine are not literary at all. I taught English for over 30 years and I read a lot of literary fiction. I was glad to read your literary fiction, which was very different from some of the things that we taught. And I didn't care about writing literary fiction, but I don't, I don't think it matters what kind of fiction you write if you feel like you're driven to tell that story. I couldn't agree more. I don't, I don't put a label on what it is I do. I, it is literary fiction, yeah, okay. But I think we all have to tell the stories that are placed on our hearts and that makes sense to us. And it may be also the kind of fiction we're drawn to. I mean, do y'all do y'all think about that? I mean, because I'm drawn to the kind of fiction I write. I would agree with that. And just what you said about being chosen, that's so interesting to me. I've never even thought about it before. But if I think about my family and the, the two things that I've had published, South of Happily and the short essay, Queen of the Hungarian Mafia, sort of representing the Hungarian Jewish community in Montreal that are all, you know, survivors of World War II and that I'm the only one in that group that's tried to write anything and people have been pretty happy with it. If I get to be the chosen one doing that, then I feel very humble and grateful that I, that I get to do that. And I've never thought about it that way. So thank you for even making me think about it that way. That's, it's really wonderful. Oh, you're welcome. We're, you know what? We're all in this together, aren't we? Yep. Aren't we all in this together? We write different things. You know, we support each other. I mean, thank you all for having me on tonight, okay. for goodness sake. Maybe, uh, this is fantastic. We, maybe we, need, we write the things that we need to write. I think so. I think we write. I think that's really good, Gabby. We write the things. And even, oh, I had a thought today. I don't know what y'all think about this. But do you, do you know that I think... I am better on the page than I am as a human being. Oh, wow. I, I had that thought for the first time this afternoon, as a matter of fact. And I do believe that because people have asked me, how did you create Sarah Kramer? You know, she's so this, that, and the other. She's such a wonderful human being. Some people have called her a saint. She's my main character in my novel. And I, I'm going to tell you something. People have asked me, are you Sarah Kramer? Oh, gosh, no, 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 no. But that's how I came to the thought, I am operating at my highest self when I'm on the page. I can see that. And do you think it's because we are able to live more authentically on the page? Maybe we hide somehow. Maybe we even yeah. are afraid to reveal. You know, <laughs> there's, there's a vulnerability that I can reveal through my characters, a depth of vulnerability that I will admit I am terrified for other people to see because I think it makes other people uncomfortable. But yet I think when it comes right down to it, I think that might be the best part of me, but I don't like that because that's a soft underbelly. Really, I realize on perhaps a spiritual level, that's probably my greatest strength. Maybe that's it. You know what, maybe that's it because I think people tell me about Sarah I've, I've had readers tell me that Sarah Creamer makes me want to be better than I am. You know, I was just thinking that when you, when you write a character, you sort of get to filter and 
edit what your character is doing, but as human beings, we're sort of living in the moment. If those are the parts of us that make us less perfect and wonderful, you know, living in the moment and reacting in the moment, that might have something to do with it. Yeah, it, it, it really might. Uh, but I mean, I, I think that's part of why I love to get to the page so that I can express the, my highest self. We t I talked to a group one time, we were workshop on memoir writing. And there was this older gentleman in the front, cause I was talking, he saw that my books were fiction. And he's like, well, I thought we were going to write about memoir. And I, I said, well, wait just a minute. I said, we are, and we're gonna talk about that. But I want you to know that I believe we reveal more about ourselves and our fiction than we do in our memoir because we really can pick and choose what we expose. But with our writing, we expose all of ourselves. We, you're not Sarah Creamer. I'm not any of my characters, but I am, and you are. You know, it's like, maybe it's the best you wanna be. Maybe it's the most in insecure you were and how you grew, whatever it is, there's snippets of ourself that come through in that and a really astute reader would pick up on it, especially if they know us, which is kind of the scary thing about sharing your work with people you know. It sure is. And you know, that was my second observation that I was, was thinking about in, in advance of Bryn being with us tonight is that this idea of transformation and you know, it's the perfect story for wild women and our wild women theme. And what I saw was Sarah's transformation, her grit and her growth and what we all do in our separate stories. Like in Gabby's South of Happily, Katie Kiss's experiences comes with that, this hard won transformation over the course of South of Happily, you know, in Gabby's book, Katie Kiss transforms, you know, and reaches this place where she's evolved. And then Ada in Shadow Runner with Kat Filer's, KJ Filer's book, you know, she evolves through this hardship. And then with Kathy's book, there's, there's a little bit of that in all of her books. And we see Sarah Kramer transform and she transforms from barely surviving to becoming this sought after dressmaker a good mother, despite having no good examples <laughs> other than a cow and someone who comes to understand that she has the right to be angry because at the beginning of the story, she doesn't seem to blame her friend for sleeping with her husband. But as she grows, so does her understanding of self-worth. And it's this beautiful theme of transformation. And I just thought that was just beautiful oh i need to get a transcript of what you said <laughs> so, that, so that i can say that that was so beautifully put kim thank you thank you that was uh i don't outline that's why it takes me five years i organically just go through it it's a movie that i get down but what i do have is what i think of as a stake in the ground to hit before the book is over and it's only one, it's only one stake, and it's for my main character, so it's for Sarah Kramer. When we meet her at the beginning of the book, she doesn't think she has a mama bone. She, you know, doesn't, can't even get angry, as you just said. There's a, 
there's a line on the first page of the novel that really kind of says it all. And I mean, it says that the light and talking about this light over the table, the light casts Sarah larger than she knows herself to be. Yes, that's it right there. There's the arc of the story. So, so the stake in the ground, I had to hit, didn't know how I was going to do it at the beginning, but I must, that light bulb in Sarah Creamer's head has to go off that she has a mama bone. So these, the stake is really simple. She begins the story, not thinking she has one. We, we come to understand why. And the story can't be over until she knows that. I mean, otherwise, why am I writing it? And why are you reading it? And so that was the great joy of writing the novel is to be a part of that transformation, is to be a part of Sarah Creamer's journey for her to come to know her magnificence. We see it on page one in the first chapter. Are you kidding me? But Sarah Creamer doesn't know it. And so that was the joy for me. And it's what kept my butt in those chair in that chair for all of those months. Oh gosh, it just gets me now. I was living. I was living for the time when Sarah Kramer would know what we, the reader knows. I wanted her to know that. Oh, that was the great glory of writing that book. I love the way you kind of began with Sarah being totally clueless about how to give the kind of mother love she'd never known. So how could she be anything but clueless? And then at the end, her promise to do better by better by an animal, but but like you said, the piece of the divine that's in all of us and and in in animals and and the spirits we share with them and the understanding that we have. I thought that was very beautiful and kind of made me. It definitely made me feel better because I've been very sad, <laughs> especially toward the end of the novel. It's just, it's heartbreaking. And then yet there was this promise of hope for knowing how to love and getting all of us getting better at how to love. Right. And that's, it's from a mother cow, Mama Red, who comes to live in her midst. You know, that's where she learns how to be a mother. I mean, my favorite part of the novel are, are the sections when Sarah addresses Mama Red. It's kind of a con confession, I think. I don't know what y'all think about it, but Sarah confesses her life story to this mother cow who comes to live in her midst. And, you know, she says, you done started only teaching of me with my boy. Can I tell you that, girl? I don't know your name. What's your name? I'm Sarah. I'm six days now into having to be his mama alone. But can I tell you something? I don't know how to be. I don't mean to be whispering, but them words, be a mama, they scare me. I'm lost. Those are my favorite parts of the story. When Sarah confesses to the mother cow and their relationship. You know, when in early drafts of the book, girls, I didn't have a whole lot of the Mama Red kind of cow's consciousness sections in it, what, what's in it right now. But I had a, a, a wonderful friend who said, Bran, you've written a novel, a story of, of two mothers. It's not just Sarah Creamer. 
It's that mother cow, it's Mama Red, who she bonds with and teaches her and gives her the strength. So I went back through and, and beefed up those sections, did the confessional part, did what I think of as the cow's consciousness, when the camera really is with Mama Red. And for me, that's what made all the difference in the story when I gave the mother cow the prominence that she deserved. And what's especially beautiful about that is there's no judgment. You know, this is, it's very difficult for people to really not judge one another. I mean, I can say I'm not judgmental and I, I, I think I'm not judgmental, but I know I make judgmental decisions or edits in my head. And this, this thinking being limited in our definition of communication, but she's not gonna judge. She's not gonna judge. She's just gonna look at her with those incredible eyes and listen. Yeah, and listen. That's beautiful. Thank you for that, Kathy. As you were using the voice, the narration voice, I loved it so much because honestly, you could have dropped in to my family and been any of my cousins, aunts that I grew up with. And I loved it so much. And as soon as, because I have bought the paperback version to read, but my husband, George, you know, has the audio book. And so I read half of it on the paperback and then I listened to half of it with George. And I swear the second you pronounce Sarah instead of Sarah, I said, oh, there it is. This is my people. <laughs> because you know, I was born and raised, not just in Georgia, but in the tiniest, backwood, sawdust, hidden little nook of Georgia. And I said, oh my goodness, no one could have narrated this except for Bryn. And she is spot flipping on marvelous Bryn, just marvelous. It was just so dead on. Honestly, you could have been any of my cousins that I grew up with. And if you'd have heard me when I was a little girl, you would know what I mean because everything was, Daddy, you home? <laughs> girl, you and I grew up in the same kind of thing because you hear my natural speaking voice. Plus I got to be an adult. I used to be in television, learned to round out my words, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Get me back in Anderson, South Carolina. You get me back at Anderson, South Carolina. Was you know, George and I were talking about how um, when Judy Bloom was narrating her book, the engineer kept pointing out, Judy, are you over there editing again? Because when she was rewording and rephrasing what she had already written, and this might even be a better question for Gabby to ask, because Gabby just heard, she didn't narrate her own audio book, but she just heard her book the audio version and and she was texting the wild women back and forth and saying oh my goodness this is so surreal to hear it you know to hear my own book read back to me did you find that you were editing the thing as you read it <laughs> well after i stopped crying the first time that i heard it because that was the first time i actually cried because i had a book yes definitely and I had actually made some corrections 
after she had done the audiobook, so I'm, I have to see if she can fix that. But yes, you definitely, you definitely catch things in the book or in the audiobook that you would have liked to have written differently. Because you know it always sounds different when you say it out loud and when you're reading it. I'm a, a big proponent of reading it out loud before you even start editing, almost, because it makes a huge, it just sounds completely different. But yes, to answer your question. Yeah, you know, I read it out loud a million times as I was writing it, but when I got into that control booth, yeah, I wanted to change things, but I didn't. I kept it true to what I had written, but gosh knows I wanted to. I mean, I remember reading a sentence or something going, oh God, Ray, you could have done so much better than that, or that's summary and explanation. You don't need that, <laughs> you know, and, and all those kinds of things. But I, as I was reading it, Kept pretty true to it. Let me tell you what the engineer told me that was like the best advice. And I've taken it on the road really as I'm talking about the book. So I get into the control booth and the engineer says to me, so Bryn, you know how each of the speaking voices sounds? And I went, uh, he said, no, no, not uh, uh do you know? Cause he's talking to me on headphones and stuff. And I'm, I said, well, you know, he said, Hey, Hey, I'm going to give you, Hey, I'm going to give you 10 minutes. And I want you to identify all of the speaking parts, you know, Sarah Kramer's Emerson bridges and you know, the confessional, all of the different narrative voices in the book. And he said, but here's how you do it. Identify the one major attitude that person is operating from and when you get to that voice that dialogue that piece all you have to do is drop into that attitude and gosh knows that is so true for sarah i just kept humility in front of me that's one word humility humble and so that every time i got to sarah creamer boom all i had to do was drop into that and y'all think about it, that changes your voice. Humility changes your voice. Luther, my villain, false bravado. Look at what that does to your voice. So did you hear that in your narrator, Gabby? You, did you hear that kind of thing? Yeah, she did a really good job. Some of the things that I was worried about is that there's some French in the book and some Hungarian in the book, and she did that. She handled that remarkably well. But yes, it, it, take, it took me a minute to see those different attitudes with the different characters. Also, I found that as the book went on, it grew on her in a way where she was sort of absorbing the story more and kind of pumping it back out in a way that she understood it more and she, it, it became better as it went on. If that make, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, oh, yeah. it, it, yeah, it, it grew. It grew with her. Yeah, she's, di she's dialing into it. There yes. were, my voice cracked three times in the reading of the book. The first time was a, was a Sarah Kramer confessional. And I remember stopping in the booth and telling the engineer, okay, I know we got to do that one again. We got to do this scene again. And he said, why? And I said, well, because my voice cracked. And he said, oh gosh, no, no, we're keeping that. It's authentic. He, this was the studio that I used did all of Harper Collins books. And he said, you know, we hire actors and actresses all day long. 
and it's and they don't mean it. They might cry a little bit or they might laugh a little bit, but they're not dialed into it so much. So we're keeping yours because it's the real McCoy. Another thing I was wondering was uh, the theme that I noticed with the men in the book was they seem stuck. Like they have a little bit of a man-child situation going. And I was wondering, was that an observation of experience or something that just found its way in organically? And that was something that my husband was wondering about as well that he noticed about the men in the book. Wow. You know what? That's a brand new idea, Kim, to me. So thank you for that. I love hearing new things about the book, new observations. Thank you and George for that. You know, it was not intentional by any stretch of the imagination. No, you know, we've got Luther, the villain who definitely is stuck in, and, and okay. So I know know how I want to answer this question. (laughs) So what I like to do as a writer is I like to give my characters the opportunity to grow. And what I have to do is put the squeeze on them to see what they're capable of. And that's why, you know, it was very hard for Sarah Creamer, for example, to put that kind of poverty on her. But I really had to put the squeeze on her. So let's get over to the men, though, to see what they're capable of. So, hey, with Luther, my protagonist, I put the squeeze on him. Or whoa, big, big, big time, because I needed him to see what he was capable of and to see if he would be able to deliver himself to what I think of as his next high place. And I agree with you, they're stuck. And what they're stuck in is the past. They're stuck in how they were wired. They're, they're stuck in how what I think of as how they were loaded loaded, how they were loaded as children. And then their adult life in my novel gives them the opportunity to get unstuck or to offload what they were loaded with. Luther was not, was not able. Uh, Ike Thrasher, let's talk about Ike, Ike Thrasher. He was, he was totally stuck and what he was loaded with, totally stuck in the past. I mean, my gosh, 25 years after his father died, he still can't walk on the land and he points his little cowboy boots, you know, over to the house. He's stuck, he's stuck. But the, the beauty of writing Ike for me is that Ike was able to deliver himself to a higher place, unstick himself. But no, that was not intentional by any stretch of the imagination. But that's a very interesting observation. Thank you. One more thing I was hoping to ask you, and I know Kathy has a question too, so I'll try to make this quick, is what I appreciated, especially after spending a lot of time being raised by a a single, very struggling mom who was was making minimum wage and, and trying to raise us, was you were always so good about pointing out how much money Sarah had left at any given time. You know, if she buys a sack of flour, now she's got $2.23 left, and this is all she has. This is all she can do with it. And even today, when I I have enough money and I'm fine, if I hear someone else say, well, I don't know why so-and-so 
doesn't just go buy this or whatever. Why are they still driving that car? They know it's going to break down or why don't they whatever. I still get, there's a little part of me that gets real irritated and angry. And I feel like you're assuming they have credit cards. You're assuming they have something else that they can fall back on. You're, you're making the, that's a whole lot of assuming you're doing, you know, and not everybody lives like we do. Not everybody is in the same place we are. There's a place in my mind that till the day I die, will remember living in that kind of home and will remember struggling and not being able to go on the field trips that the other kids went on and having to sit in class and do the the alternate, uh, what was it they called it? If your child cannot afford this field trip, an alternate activity will be will be provided for them. So when I read that in your book, always pointing out how much money the mother had left, she bought whatever, and she had $2.15 left. I was like, thank you, Bryn. Thank you. Because that is still reality for a lot of people, you know, especially the single moms. So I'm saying to you, thank you very much. (laughs) You're welcome, Kim. It was hard to make her that impoverished, but I I had to. Yeah, because, you know, and I think some people think, well, that was 19 whatever. And they don't see it as still being a reality for some people today, but it still is a reality for some it people. It still is a reality for some people today. And we, we may not want to look at them or think about them like that, but there is, there are people right now today who are living just like that. My heart just went out to Sarah, God bless her, that she kept her list and she wrote everything down. If it was a, a 10 cents piece of fat back, you know, that's a dime. That's a dime off of her $2 and something that she has. And God bless Sarah Kramer. That's right. And I just appreciated you for that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. When, Kathy. when we were talking about the men, I thought of Faulkner because when we taught, I taught Faulkner in high school. I love Faulkner. He's not always an easy sell to high school kids. But one of the things that Faulkner, and I can't remember the exact quote or exactly how he put it, but he believed that the only people that you could really trust were young kids, like uh, adolescents, women for the most part, and older women every time. He, and if you look at his novels, well, we, we always taught The Unvanquished because it was easier access for high school kids. And it's the granny who is keeping everything together and the two young boys are, are learning from that, but they haven't reached the age where they could get stuck. And I thought about Emerson. Is Emerson right? No. Yeah, Emerson Bridge, right? Emerson. Yeah, Emerson. Sure, sure. I thought about Emerson, and he's, of course, not stuck. You know, he's too young to be stuck. And so what I'm hoping is that just as at the end, the, the birth of the female calf, that she knows how to mother now. She gets it. It's a story of hope and regeneration. But also that young boy, that he's always saying, I don't understand, you are my mama. And you're a good mama. Even when he's angry with her, you're a good mama. So it's, he's, that's what it is. He said, you can trust the viewpoint of the young, young kids like that, about that age, mostly of women, and definitely of older women. And so his older women are fantastic. And although Sarah Creamer is not an older woman, she becomes the wisdom. I think somewhere you mentioned the wisdom. 
a couple of times in the book and she's got the wisdom of an older person by the time it's over. So maybe you hit your Faulkner stride again. I know you won a Faulkner award and you might have hit it again. <laughs> well, thank you. That would, that would be a high, high honor, wouldn't it? I mean, I used to read The Sound and the Fury. That's the, that's the book when I read it that I started to understand what voice was. All of the other books I'd read my entire life before then, and this was, I think I was in the 12th grade, blended together until I hit The Sound and the Fury, which was a difficult book. Oh, my gosh. Well, it's been wonderful having you on, Bren. Is there anything we didn't say that you would like to mention? Just thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, thank you, we thank you, thank you. This is you. I mean, I could. I, I feel like we can just keep going and you know, <laughs> sisterhood here talking. You, you gals are awesome. Uh, you know, when I met you all in Carrollton, I knew you had a special energy and a special synthesis of of each of you in it, and I just. I marvel at what you've created, and I'm also honored and humbled that you invited me to be a part of this. We are just so lucky to have had you talk to our listeners and be a part of the Wild Women. We consider you an honorary Wild Women. We know you're just going to get wilder and wilder. That's what we're working on. We're not getting older. We're getting wilder. So thank you again so much. And if there was anything that we left out, please add it now. Um, I want to get wilder and wilder. That's yes. Hey, I mean, I'm in. Sign me up. You know, I'll send in my $10 or whatever I need. I'm telling you, I want to get wilder and wilder. Let's do it. Thank you again, friends, so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us tonight. We welcome your comments and invite you to check out our Wild Women Who Write website. Until next time, Keep writing and stay wild.